Law 20. Do not commit to anyone. Judgment. It is the fool who always rushes to take sides. Do not commit to any side or cause but yourself. By maintaining your independence, you become the master of others, playing people against one another, making them pursue you. Part 1. Do not commit to anyone but be courted by all. If you allow people to feel they possess you to any degree, you lose all power over them. By not committing your affections, they will only try harder to win you over. Stay aloof, and you gain the power that comes from their attention and frustrated desire. Play the Virgin Queen. Give them hope, but never satisfaction. Observance of the Law When Queen Elizabeth I ascended the throne of England in 1558, there was much to do about her finding a husband. The issue was debated in Parliament and was a main topic of conversation among Englishmen of all classes. They often disagreed as to whom she should marry, but everyone thought she should marry as soon as possible, for a queen must have a king and must bear heirs for the kingdom. The debates raged on for years. Meanwhile, the most handsome and eligible bachelors in the realm, Sir Robert Dudley, the Earl of Essex, Sir Walter Raleigh, vied for Elizabeth's hand. She did not discourage them, but she seemed to be in no hurry, and her hints as to which man might be her favorite often contradicted each other. In 1566, Parliament sent a delegation to Elizabeth urging her to marry before she was too old to bear children. She did not argue, nor did she discourage the delegation, but she remained a virgin nonetheless. The delicate game that Elizabeth played with her suitors slowly made her the subject of innumerable sexual fantasies and the object of cultish worship. The court physician, Simon Foreman, used his diary to describe his dreams of deflowering her. Painters represented her as Diana and other goddesses. The poet Edmund Spencer and others wrote eulogies to the Virgin Queen. She was referred to as the world's empress, that virtuous Virgo who rules the world and sets the stars in motion. In conversation with her, her many male suitors would employ bold sexual innuendo, a dare that Elizabeth did not discourage. She did all she could to stir their interest and simultaneously keep them at bay. Throughout Europe, kings and princes knew that a marriage with Elizabeth would seal an alliance between England and any nation. The King of Spain wooed her, as did the Prince of Sweden and the Archduke of Austria. She politely refused them all. The great diplomatic issue of Elizabeth's day was posed by the revolt of the Flemish and Dutch lowlands, which were then possessions of Spain. Should England break its alliance with Spain and choose France as its main ally on the continent, thereby encouraging Flemish and Dutch independence? By 1570, it had come to seem that an alliance with France would be England's wisest course. France had two eligible men of noble blood, the Dukes of Anjou and Alençon, brothers of the French king. Would either of them marry Elizabeth? 
Both had advantages, and Elizabeth kept the hopes of both alive. The issue simmered for years. The Duke of Anjou made several visits to England, kissed Elizabeth in public, even called her by pet names. She appeared to requite his affections. Meanwhile, as she flirted with the two brothers, a treaty was signed that sealed peace between France and England. By 1582, Elizabeth felt she could break off the courtship. In the case of the Duke of Anjou in particular, she did so with great relief. For the sake of diplomacy, she had allowed herself to be courted by a man whose presence she could not stand and whom she found physically repulsive. Once peace between France and England was secure, she dropped the unctuous duke as politely as she could. By this time, Elizabeth was too old to bear children. She was accordingly able to live the rest of her life as she desired, and she died the virgin queen. She left no direct heir, but ruled through a period of incomparable peace and cultural fertility. Interpretation Elizabeth knew that marriage can often lead to a female ruler's undoing. By marrying and committing to an alliance with one party or nation, the queen becomes embroiled in conflicts that are not of her choosing, conflicts which may eventually overwhelm her or lead her into a futile war. Also, the husband becomes the de facto ruler and often tries to do away with his wife, the queen. She had two goals as a ruler, to avoid marriage and to avoid war. She managed to combine these goals by dangling the possibility of marriage in order to forge alliances. The moment she committed to any single suitor would have been the moment she lost her power. She had to emanate mystery and desirability, never discouraging anyone's hopes, but never yielding. Through this lifelong game of flirting and withdrawing, Elizabeth dominated the country and every man who sought to conquer her. As the center of attention, she was in control. Keeping her independence above all, Elizabeth protected her power and made herself an object of worship. Keys to Power When you hold yourself back, you incur not anger, but a kind of respect. You instantly seem powerful because you make yourself ungraspable rather than succumbing to the group or to the relationship, as most people do. This aura of power only grows with time. As your reputation for independence grows, more and more people will come to desire you, wanting to be the one who gets you to commit. Desire is like a virus. If we see that someone is desired by other people, we tend to find this person desirable, too. The moment you commit, the magic is gone. You become like everyone else. People will try all kinds of underhanded methods to get you to commit. They will give you gifts, shower you with favors, all to put you under obligation. Encourage the attention, stimulate their interest, but do not commit at any cost. Accept the gifts and favors if you so desire, but be careful to maintain your inner aloofness. You cannot inadvertently allow yourself to feel obligated to anyone. Stay aloof, and people will come to you. It will become a challenge for them to win your affections. As long as you imitate the wise virgin queen and stimulate their hopes, 
you will remain a magnet of attention and desire. Part 2. Do not commit to anyone. Stay above the fray. Do not let people suck you into their petty fights and squabbles. Seem supportive and interested, but find a way to remain neutral. Let others do the fighting, while you stand back, watch, and wait. When the fighting parties are good and tired, they will be ripe for the picking. You can make it a practice, in fact, to stir up quarrels between other people and then offer to mediate, gaining power as the go-between. Observance of the Law In the late 15th century, the strongest city-states in Italy, Venice, Florence, Rome, and Milan, found themselves constantly squabbling. Hovering above their struggles were the nations of France and Spain, ready to grab whatever they could from the weakened Italian powers. And trapped in the middle was the small state of Mantua, ruled by the young Duke Gianfrancesco Gonzaga. Mantua was strategically located in central Italy, and it seemed only a matter of time before one of the powers swallowed it up and it ceased to exist as an independent kingdom. Gonzaga was a fierce warrior and a skilled commander of troops, and he became a kind of mercenary general for whatever side paid him best. In the year 1490, he married Isabella d'Este, daughter of the ruler of another small Italian kingdom, Ferrara. Since he now spent most of his time away from Mantua, it fell to Isabella to rule in his stead. Isabella's first true test as ruler came in 1498, when King Louis XII of France was preparing armies to attack Milan. In their usual perfidious fashion, the Italian states immediately looked for ways to profit from Milan's difficulties. Pope Alexander VI promised not to intervene, thereby giving the French carte blanche. The Venetians signaled that they would not help Milan either, and in exchange for this, they hoped the French would give them Mantua. The ruler of Milan, Lodovico Sforza, suddenly found himself alone and abandoned. He turned to Isabella d'Este, one of his closest friends, also rumored to be his lover and begged her to persuade Duke Gonzaga to come to his aid. Isabella tried, but her husband balked, for he saw Sforza's cause as hopeless. And so, in 1499, Louis swooped down on Milan and took it with ease. Isabella now faced a dilemma. If she stayed loyal to Lodovico, the French would now move against her. But if, instead... She allied herself with France. She would make enemies elsewhere in Italy, compromising Mantua once Louis eventually withdrew. And if she looked to Venice or Rome for help, they would simply swallow up Mantua under the cloak of coming to her aid. Yet, she had to do something. The mighty king of France was breathing down her neck. She decided to befriend him, as she had befriended Lodovico Sforza before him with alluring gifts, witty, intelligent letters, and the possibility of her company. For Isabella was famous as a woman of incomparable beauty and charm. In 1500, Louis invited Isabella to a great party in Milan to celebrate his victory. Leonardo da Vinci built an enormous mechanical lion for the affair, 
When the lion opened its mouth, it spewed fresh lilies, the symbols of French royalty. At the party, Isabella wore one of her celebrated dresses. She had by far the largest wardrobe of any of the Italian princesses. And just as she had hoped, she charmed and captivated Louis, who ignored all the other ladies vying for his attention. She soon became his constant companion, and in exchange for her friendship, he pledged to protect Mantua's independence from Venice. As one danger receded, however, another, more worrying one, arose, this time from the south, in the form of Cesare Borgia. Starting in 1500, Borgia had marched steadily northward, gobbling up all the small kingdoms in his path in the name of his father, Pope Alexander. Isabella understood Cesare perfectly. He could be neither trusted nor in any way offended. He had to be cajoled and kept at arm's length. Isabella began by sending him gifts, falcons, prized dogs, perfumes, and dozens of masks, which she knew he always wore when he walked the streets of Rome. She sent messengers with flattering greetings, although these messengers also acted as her spies. At one point, Cesare asked if he could house some troops in Mantua. Isabella managed to dissuade him politely, knowing full well that once the troops were quartered in the city, they would never leave. Even when Isabella was charming Cesare, she convinced everyone around her to take care never to utter a harsh word about him since he had spies everywhere and would use the slightest pretext for invasion. When Isabella had a child, she asked Cesare to be the godfather. She even dangled in front of him the possibility of a marriage between her family and his. Somehow it all worked, for although elsewhere he seized everything in his path, he spared Mantua. In 1503, Cesare's father Alexander died and a few years later, the new pope, Julius II, went to war to drive the French troops from Italy. When the ruler of Ferrara, Alfonso, Isabella's brother, sided with the French, Julius decided to attack and humble him. Once again, Isabella found herself in the middle, the pope on one side, the French and her brother on the other. She dared not ally herself with either, but to offend either would be equally disastrous. Again, she played the double game at which she had become so expert. On the one hand, she got her husband Gonzaga to fight for the Pope, knowing he would not fight very hard. On the other, she let French troops pass through Mantua to come to Ferrara's aid. While she publicly complained that the French had invaded her territory, she privately supplied them with valuable information. To make the invasion plausible to Julius, she even had the French pretend to plunder Mantua. It worked once again. The Pope left Mantua alone. In 1513, after a lengthy siege, Julius defeated Ferrara, and the French troops withdrew. Worn out by the effort, the Pope died a few months later. With his death, the nightmarish cycle of battles and petty squabbles began to repeat itself. A great deal changed in Italy during Isabella's reign. Popes came and went. Cesare Borgia rose and then fell. Venice lost its empire. Milan was invaded. Florence fell into decline. And Rome 
was sacked by the Habsburg Emperor Charles V. Through all this, tiny Mantua not only survived, but thrived. Its court, the envy of Italy. Its wealth and sovereignty would remain intact for a century after Isabella's death in 1539. Interpretation Learn to control yourself, to restrain your natural tendency to take sides and join the fight. Be friendly and charming to each of the combatants, then step back as they collide. With every battle, they grow weaker, while you grow stronger with every battle you avoid. Keys to Power To succeed in the game of power, you have to master your emotions. But even if you succeed in gaining such self-control, you can never control the temperamental dispositions of those around you. And this presents a great danger. Most people operate in a whirlpool of emotions, constantly reacting, churning up squabbles and conflicts. Your self-control and autonomy will only bother and infuriate them. They will try to draw you into the whirlpool, begging you to take sides in their endless battles or to make peace for them. If you succumb to their emotional entreaties, little by little, you will find your mind and time occupied by their problems. Do not allow whatever compassion and pity you possess to suck you in. You can never win in this game. The conflicts can only multiply. On the other hand, you cannot completely stand aside, for that would cause needless offense. To play the game properly, you must seem interested in other people's problems, even sometimes appear to take their side. But while you make outward gestures of support, you must maintain your inner energy and sanity by keeping your emotions disengaged. No matter how hard people try to pull you in, never let your interest in their affairs and petty squabbles go beyond the surface. Give them gifts. Listen with a sympathetic look. Even occasionally, play the charmer. But inwardly, keep both the friendly kings and the perfidious bourges at arm's length. By refusing to commit and thus maintaining your autonomy, you retain the initiative. Your moves stay matters of your own choosing, not defensive reactions to the push and pull of those around you. Play a waiting game, and you cannot lose. Law 21. Play a sucker to catch a sucker. Seem dumber than your mark. Judgment. No one likes feeling stupider than the next person. The trick, then, is to make your victims feel smart. And not just smart, but smarter than you are. Once convinced of this, they will never suspect that you may have ulterior motives. Observance of the Law In the winter of 1872, the U.S. financier Asbury Harpending was visiting London when he received a cable. A diamond mine had been discovered in the American West. The cable came from a reliable source, William Ralston, owner of the Bank of California, but Harpending nevertheless took it as a practical joke, probably inspired by the recent discovery of huge diamond mines in South Africa. True, when reports had first come in of gold being discovered in the western United States, everyone had been skeptical, and those had turned out to be true. But a diamond mine in the West? 
Harpending showed the cable to his fellow financier, Baron Rothschild, one of the richest men in the world, saying it must be a joke. The Baron, however, replied, don't be too sure about that. America is a very large country. It has furnished the world with many surprises already. Perhaps it has others in store. Harpending promptly took the first ship back to the States. When Harpending reached San Francisco, there was an excitement in the air, recalling the gold rush days of the late 1840s. Two crusty prospectors named Philip Arnold and John Slack had been the ones to find the diamond mine. They had not divulged its location in Wyoming, but had led a highly respected mining expert to it several weeks back, taking a circular route so he could not guess his whereabouts. Once there, the expert had watched as the miners dug up diamonds. Back in San Francisco, the expert had taken the gems to various jewelers, one of whom had estimated their worth at $1.5 million. Harpending and Ralston now asked Arnold and Slack to accompany them back to New York, where the jeweler Charles Tiffany would verify the original estimates. The prospectors responded uneasily. They smelled a trap. How could they trust these city slickers? What if Tiffany and the financiers managed to steal the whole mine out from under them? Ralston tried to allay their fears by giving them $100,000 and placing another $300,000 in escrow for them. If the deal went through, they would be paid an additional $300,000. The miners agreed. The little group traveled to New York, where a meeting was held at the mansion of Samuel L. Barlow. The cream of the city's aristocracy was in attendance. General George Brenton McClellan, commander of the Union forces in the Civil War, General Benjamin Butler, Horace Greeley, editor of the newspaper The New York Tribune, Harpending, Ralston, and Tiffany. Only Slack and Arnold were missing. As tourists in the city, they had decided to go sightseeing. When Tiffany announced that the gems were real and worth a fortune, the financiers could barely control their excitement. They wired Rothschild and other tycoons to tell them about the diamond mine and inviting them to share in the investment. At the same time, they also told the prospectors that they wanted one more test. They insisted that a mining expert of their choosing accompany Slack and Arnold to the site to verify its wealth. The prospectors reluctantly agreed. In the meantime, they said, they had to return to San Francisco the jewels that Tiffany had examined, they left with Harpending for safekeeping. Several weeks later, a man named Louis Jannon, the best mining expert in the country, met the prospectors in San Francisco. Jannon was a born skeptic who was determined to make sure that the mine was not a fraud. Accompanying Jannon were Harpending and several other interested financiers. As with the previous expert, the prospectors led the team through a complex series of canyons, completely confusing them as to their whereabouts. Arriving at the site, the financiers watched in amazement as Jannon dug the area up, leveling anthills, turning over boulders, and finding emeralds, rubies, sapphires, and most of all, diamonds. The dig lasted eight days, and by the end, Jannon was convinced. He told the investors that they now possessed the richest field in mining history. With a hundred men and proper machinery, he told them, I would guarantee to send out 
$1 million in diamonds every 30 days. Returning to San Francisco a few days later, Ralston, Harpending, and company acted fast to form a $10 million corporation of private investors. First, however, they had to get rid of Arnold and Slack. That meant hiding their excitement. They certainly did not want to reveal the field's real value. So they played possum. Who knows if Janin is right, they told the prospectors. The mine may not be as rich as we think. This just made the prospectors angry. Trying a different tactic, the financiers told the two men that if they insisted on having shares in the mine, they would end up being fleeced by the unscrupulous tycoons and investors who would run the corporation. Better, they said, to take the $700,000 already offered, an enormous sum at the time, and put their greed aside. This, the prospectors seemed to understand, and they finally agreed to take the money, in return signing the rights to the site over to the financiers and leaving maps to it. News of the mine spread like wildfire. Prospectors fanned out across Wyoming. Meanwhile, Harpending and Group began spending the millions they had collected from their investors, buying equipment, hiring the best men in the business, and furnishing luxurious offices in New York and San Francisco. A few weeks later, on their first trip back to the site, they learned the hard truth. Not a single diamond or ruby was to be found. It was all a fake. They were ruined. Harpending had unwittingly lured the richest men in the world into the biggest scam of the century. Interpretation Arnold and Slack pulled off their stupendous con not by using a fake engineer or bribing Tiffany. All of the experts had been real. All of them honestly believed in the existence of the mine and in the value of the gems. What had fooled them all was nothing else than Arnold and Slack themselves. The two men seemed to be such rubes, such hayseeds, so naive, that no one for an instant had believed them capable of an audacious scam. The prospectors had simply observed the law of appearing more stupid than the mark, the deceiver's first commandment. The logistics of the con were quite simple. Months before Arnold and Slack announced the discovery of the diamond mine, they traveled to Europe, where they purchased some real gems for around $12,000, part of the money they had saved from their days as gold miners. They then salted the mine with these gems, which the first expert dug up and brought to San Francisco. The jewelers who had appraised these stones, including Tiffany himself, had gotten caught up in the fever and had grossly overestimated their value. Then Ralston gave the prospectors $100,000 as security, and immediately after their trip to New York, they simply went to Amsterdam, where they bought sacks of uncut gems before returning to San Francisco. The second time they salted the mine, there were many more jewels to be found. The effectiveness of the scheme, however, rested not on tricks like these, but on the fact that Arnold and Slack played their parts to perfection. On their trip to New York, where they mingled with millionaires and tycoons, they played up their clodhopper image, wearing pants and coats a size or two too small and acting incredulous at everything they saw in the big city. No one believed that these country simpletons could possibly be conning the most devious, unscrupulous financiers of the time. 
keys to power. Given how important the idea of intelligence is to most people's vanity, it is critical never inadvertently to insult or impugn a person's brain power. That is an unforgivable sin, but if you can make this iron rule work for you, it opens up all sorts of avenues of deception. Subliminally reassure people that they are more intelligent than you are, or even that you are a bit of a moron, and you can run rings around them. The feeling of intellectual superiority you give them will disarm their suspicion muscles. Intelligence is the obvious quality to downplay, but why stop there? Taste and sophistication rank close to intelligence on the vanity scale, make people feel they are more sophisticated than you are, and their guard will come down. As Arnold and Slack knew, an air of complete naivete can work wonders. Those fancy financiers were laughing at them behind their backs. But who laughed loudest in the end? In general, then, always make people believe they are smarter and more sophisticated than you are. They will keep you around because you make them feel better about themselves. And the longer you are around, the more opportunities you will have to deceive them. Law 22. Use the surrender tactic. Transform weakness into power. Judgment. When you are weaker, never fight for honor's sake. Choose surrender instead. Surrender gives you time to recover, time to torment and irritate your conqueror, time to wait for his power to wane. Do not give him the satisfaction of fighting and defeating you. Surrender first. By turning the other cheek, you infuriate and unsettle him. Make surrender a tool of power. Observance of the Law Sometime in the 1920s, the German writer Bertolt Brecht became a convert to the cause of communism. From then on, his plays, essays, and poems reflected his revolutionary fervor, and he generally tried to make his ideological statements as clear as possible. When Hitler came to power in Germany, Brecht and his communist colleagues became marked men. He had many friends in the United States. Americans who sympathized with his beliefs, as well as fellow German intellectuals who had fled Hitler. In 1941, accordingly, Brecht emigrated to the United States and chose to settle in Los Angeles, where he hoped to make a living in the film business. Over the next few years, Brecht wrote screenplays with a pointedly anti-capitalist slant. He had little success in Hollywood, so in 1947... The war having ended, he decided to return to Europe. That same year, however, the U.S. Congress's House Un-American Activities Committee began its investigation into supposed communist infiltration in Hollywood. It began to gather information on Brecht, who had so openly espoused Marxism, and on September 19, 1947, only a month before he had planned to leave the United States, he received a subpoena to appear before the committee. In addition to Brecht, a number of other writers, producers, and directors were summoned to appear as well, and this group came to be known as the Hollywood 19. Before going to Washington, the Hollywood 19 met to decide on a plan of action. Their approach would be confrontational. Instead of answering questions about their membership, or lack of it, 
In the Communist Party, they would read prepared statements that would challenge the authority of the committee and argue that its activities were unconstitutional. Even if this strategy meant imprisonment, it would gain publicity for their cause. Brecht disagreed. What good was it, he asked, to play the martyr and gain a little public sympathy if in the process they lost the ability to stage their plays and sell their scripts for years to come? He felt certain they were all more intelligent than the members of the committee. Why lower themselves to the level of their opponents by arguing with them? Why not outfox the committee by appearing to surrender to it while subtly mocking it? The Hollywood 19 listened to Brecht politely, but decided to stick to their plan, leaving Brecht to go his own way. The committee finally summoned Brecht on October 30th. They expected him to do what others among the Hollywood 19 who had testified before him had done, argue, refuse to answer questions, challenge the committee's right to hold its hearing, even yell and hurl insults. Much to their surprise, however, Brecht was the very picture of congeniality. He wore a suit, something he rarely did, smoked a cigar. He had heard that the committee chairman was a passionate cigar smoker, answered their questions politely, and generally deferred to their authority. Unlike the other witnesses, Brecht answered the question of whether he belonged to the Communist Party. He was not a member, he said, which happened to be the truth. One committee member asked him, is it true you have written a number of revolutionary plays? Brecht had written many plays with overt communist messages, but he responded, I have written a number of poems and songs and plays in the fight against Hitler, and, of course, they can be considered, therefore, as revolutionary, because I, of course, was for the overthrow of that government. This statement went unchallenged. Brecht's English was more than adequate, but he used an interpreter throughout his testimony a tactic that allowed him to play subtle games with language. When committee members found communist leanings in lines from English editions of his poems, he would repeat the lines in German for the interpreter, who would then retranslate them, and somehow they would come out innocuous. At one point, a committee member read one of Brecht's revolutionary poems out loud in English and asked him if he had written it. No, he responded, I wrote a German poem, which is very different from this. The author's elusive answers baffled the committee members, but his politeness and the way he yielded to their authority made it impossible for them to get angry with him. After only an hour of questioning, the committee members had had enough. Thank you very much, said the chairman. You are a good example to the other witnesses. Not only did they free him, they offered to help him if he had any trouble with immigration officials who might detain him for their own reasons. The following day, Brecht left the U.S., never to return. Interpretation The Hollywood 19's confrontational approach won them a lot of sympathy, and years later they gained a kind of vindication in public opinion. But they were also blacklisted and lost valuable years of profitable working time. Brecht, on the other hand, expressed his disgust at the committee more indirectly. It was not that he changed his beliefs or compromised his values. Instead, during his short testimony, he kept the upper hand by appearing to yield, while all the time 
running circles around the committee with vague responses, outright lies that went unchallenged because they were wrapped in enigmas and word games. In the end, he kept the freedom to continue his revolutionary writing, as opposed to suffering imprisonment or detainment in the United States, even while subtly mocking the committee and its authority with his pseudo-obedience. Keep in mind the following. People trying to make a show of their authority are easily deceived by the surrender tactic. Your outward sign of submission makes them feel important, satisfied that you respect them. They become easier targets for a later counterattack or for the kind of indirect ridicule used by Brecht. Measuring your power over time never sacrifice long-term maneuverability for the short-lived glories of martyrdom. Keys to Power What gets us into trouble in the realm of power is often our own overreaction to the moves of our enemies and rivals. That overreaction creates problems we would have avoided had we been more reasonable. It also has an endless rebound effect, for the enemy then overreacts as well. It is always our first instinct to react, to meet aggression with some other kind of aggression. But the next time someone pushes you and you find yourself starting to react, try this. Do not resist or fight back, but yield. Turn the other cheek. Bend. You will find that this often neutralizes their behavior. They expected, even wanted you to react with force, and so they are caught off guard and confounded by your lack of resistance. By yielding, you, in fact, control the situation because your surrender is part of a larger plan to lull them into believing they have defeated you. This is the essence of the surrender tactic. Inwardly, you stay firm, but outwardly, you bend. Deprived of a reason to get angry, your opponents will often be bewildered instead, and they are unlikely to react with more violence, which would demand a reaction from you instead. You are allowed the time and space to plot the counter moves that will bring them down. In the battle of the intelligent against the brutal and the aggressive, the surrender tactic is the supreme weapon. It does require self-control. Those who genuinely surrender give up their freedom and may be crushed by the humiliation of their defeat. You have to remember that you only appear to surrender, like the animal that plays dead to save its hide. Power is always in flux. Since the game is, by nature, fluid and an arena of struggle, those with power almost always find themselves eventually on the downward swing. If you find yourself temporarily weakened, the surrender tactic is perfect for raising yourself up again. It disguises your ambition. It teaches you patience and self-control, key skills in the game and it puts you in the best possible position for taking advantage of your oppressor's sudden slide. If you run away or fight back, in the long run, you cannot win. If you surrender, you will almost always emerge victorious. Law 23. Concentrate your forces. Judgment. Conserve your forces and energies by keeping them concentrated at their strongest point. You gain more by finding a rich mine and mining it deeper than by flitting from one shallow mine to another. 
Intensity defeats extensity every time. When looking for sources of power to elevate you, find the one key patron, the fat cow, who will give you milk for a long time to come. Transgression of the Law In China, in the early 6th century BC, the kingdom of Wu began a war with the neighboring northern provinces of the Middle Kingdom. Wu was a growing power, but it lacked the great history and civilization of the Middle Kingdom, for centuries the center of Chinese culture. By defeating the Middle Kingdom, the king of Wu would instantly raise his status. The war began with great fanfare and several victories, but it soon bogged down. A victory on one front would leave the Wu armies vulnerable on another. The king's chief minister and advisor, Wu Tzushu, warned him that the barbarous state of Yue to the south was beginning to notice the kingdom of Wu's problems and had designs to invade. The king only laughed at such worries. One more big victory and the great middle kingdom would be his. In the year 490, Wu Tzushu sent his son away to safety in the kingdom of Qi. In doing so, he sent the king a signal that he disapproved of the war and that he believed the king's selfish ambition was leading Wu to ruin. The king, sensing betrayal, lashed out at his minister, accusing him of a lack of loyalty and, in a fit of anger, ordered him to kill himself. Wu Tzushu obeyed his king, but before he plunged the knife into his chest, he cried, Tear out my eyes, O king, and fix them on the gate of Wu, so that I may see the triumphant entry of Yue. As Wu Tzushu had predicted, within a few years, a Yue army passed beneath the gate of Wu. As the barbarians surrounded the palace, the king remembered his minister's last words and felt the dead man's disembodied eyes watching his disgrace. Unable to bear his shame, the king killed himself, covering his face so that he would not have to meet the reproachful gaze of his minister in the next world. Interpretation The story of Wu is a paradigm of all the empires that have come to ruin by overreaching. Drunk with success and sick with ambition, such empires expand to grotesque proportions and meet a ruin that is total. For the Chinese, the fate of the kingdom of Wu serves as an elemental lesson on what happens when you dissipate your forces on several fronts, losing sight of distant dangers for the sake of present gain. If you are not in danger, says Sun Tzu, do not fight. It is almost a physical law what is bloated beyond its proportions inevitably collapses. The mind must not wander from goal to goal or be distracted by success from its sense of purpose and proportion. What is concentrated, coherent, and connected to its past has power. What is dissipated, divided, and distended rots and falls to the ground. The bigger it bloats, the harder it falls. Keys to Power As Schopenhauer wrote, intellect is a magnitude of intensity, not a magnitude of extensity. Napoleon knew the value of concentrating your forces at the enemy's weakest spot. It was the secret of his success on the battlefield. 
but his willpower and his mind were equally modeled on this notion. Single-mindedness of purpose, total concentration on the goal, and the use of these qualities against people less focused, people in a state of distraction, such an arrow will find its mark every time and overwhelm the enemy. Concentrate on a single goal, a single task, and beat it into submission. In the world of power, you will constantly need help from other people, usually those more powerful than you. The fool flits from one person to another, believing that he will survive by spreading himself out. It is a corollary of the law of concentration, however, that much energy is saved and more power is attained by affixing yourself to a single, appropriate source of power. Throughout his life, the 16th-century writer Pietro Aretino suffered the indignities of having to please this prince and that. At last, he had had enough and decided to woo Charles V, promising the emperor the services of his powerful pen. He finally discovered the freedom that came from attachment to a single source of power. Michelangelo found this freedom with Pope Julius II, Galileo with the Medicis. In the end, the single patron appreciates your loyalty and becomes dependent on your services. In the long run, the master serves the slave. Power always exists in concentrated forms. In any organization, it is inevitable for a small group to hold the strings. And often, it is not those with the titles. In the game of power, only the fool flails about without fixing his target. You must find out who controls the operations, who is the real director behind the scenes. As Richelieu discovered at the beginning of his rise to the top of the French political scene during the early 17th century, it was not King Louis XIII who decided things. It was the king's mother, and so he attached himself to her and catapulted through the ranks of the courtiers all the way to the top. It is enough to strike oil once. Your wealth and power are assured for a lifetime. Law 24. Play the perfect courtier. Judgment. The perfect courtier thrives in a world where everything revolves around power and political dexterity. He has mastered the art of indirection. He flatters, yields to superiors, and asserts power over others in the most oblique and graceful manner. Learn and apply the laws of courtiership, and there will be no limit to how far you can rise in the court. Court Society It is a fact of human nature that the structure of a court society forms itself around power. In the past, the court gathered around the ruler and had many functions. Besides keeping the ruler amused, it was a way to solidify the hierarchy of royalty, nobility, and the upper classes, and to keep the nobility both subordinate and close to the ruler, so that he could keep an eye on them. The court serves power in many ways, but most of all, it glorifies the ruler, providing him with a microcosmic world that must struggle to please him. To be a courtier was a dangerous game, a 19th-century Arab traveler to the court of Darfur in what is now Sudan 
reported that courtiers there had to do whatever the sultan did. If he were injured, they had to suffer the same injury. If he fell off his horse during a hunt, they fell too. Mimicry like this appeared in courts all over the world. More troublesome was the danger of displeasing the ruler. One wrong move spelled death or exile. The successful courtier had to walk a tightrope, pleasing but not pleasing too much, obeying but somehow distinguishing himself from the other courtiers, while also never distinguishing himself so far as to make the ruler insecure. Great courtiers throughout history have mastered the science of manipulating people. They make the king feel more kingly. They make everyone else fear their power. They are magicians of appearance, knowing that most things at court are judged by how they seem. Great courtiers are gracious and polite. Their aggression is veiled and indirect. Masters of the word, they never say more than necessary, getting the most out of a compliment or hidden insult. They are magnets of pleasure. People want to be around them because they know how to please. Yet, they neither fawn nor humiliate themselves. Great courtiers become the king's favorites, enjoying the benefits of that position. They often end up more powerful than the ruler, for they are wizards in the accumulation of influence. Many today dismiss court life as a relic of the past, a historical curiosity. They reason, according to Machiavelli, as though heaven, the sun, the elements, and men had changed the order of their motions and power and were different from what they were in ancient times. There may be no more sun kings, but there are still plenty of people who believe the sun revolves around them. The royal court may have more or less disappeared, or at least lost its power, but courts and courtiers still exist because power still exists. A courtier is rarely asked to fall off a horse anymore, but the laws that govern court politics are as timeless as the laws of power. There is much to be learned, then, from great courtiers past and present. The Laws of Court Politics Avoid ostentation. It is never prudent to prattle on about yourself or call too much attention to your actions. The more you talk about your deeds, the more suspicion you cause. You also stir up enough envy among your peers to induce treachery and backstabbing. Be careful, ever so careful, in trumpeting your own achievements and always talk less about yourself than about other people. Modesty is generally preferable. Practice nonchalance. Never seem to be working too hard. Your talent must appear to flow naturally with an ease that makes people take you for a genius rather than a workaholic. Be frugal with flattery. It may seem that your superiors cannot get enough flattery, but too much of even a good thing loses its value. It also stirs up suspicion among your peers. Learn to flatter indirectly by downplaying your own contribution, for example, to make your master look better. Arrange to be noticed. There is a paradox. You cannot display yourself too brazenly, yet you must also get yourself noticed. 
You stand no chance of rising if the ruler does not notice you in the swamp of courtiers. This task requires much art. It is often initially a matter of being seen in the literal sense. Pay attention to your physical appearance then and find a way to create a distinctive, a subtly distinctive, style and image. Alter your style and language according to the person you are dealing with. The pseudo-belief in equality, the idea that talking and acting the same way with everyone, no matter what their rank, makes you somehow a paragon of civilization, is a terrible mistake. Those below you will take it as a form of condescension, which it is, and those above you will be offended, although they may not admit it. You must change your style and your way of speaking to suit each person. This is not lying, it is acting, and acting is an art, not a gift from God. Learn the art. Never be the bearer of bad news. The king kills the messenger who brings bad news. This is a cliché, but there is truth to it. You must struggle and, if necessary, lie and cheat to be sure that the lot of the bearer of bad news falls on a colleague, never on you. Bring only good news and your approach will gladden your master. Never affect friendliness and intimacy with your master. He does not want a friend for a subordinate. He wants a subordinate. Never approach him in an easy, friendly way, or act as if you are on the best of terms. That is his prerogative. If he chooses to deal with you on this level, assume a wary chumminess. Otherwise, err in the opposite direction, and make the distance between you clear. Never criticize those above you directly. This may seem obvious, but there are often times when some sort of criticism is necessary. To say nothing or to give no advice would open you to risks of another sort. You must learn, however, to couch your advice and criticism as indirectly and as politely as possible. Think twice or three times before deciding you have made them sufficiently circuitous. Err on the side of subtlety and gentleness. Be frugal in asking those above you for favors. Nothing irritates a master more than having to reject someone's request. It stirs up guilt and resentment. Ask for favors as rarely as possible and know when to stop. Never joke about appearances or taste. A lively wit and a humorous disposition are essential qualities for a good courtier, and there are times when vulgarity is appropriate and engaging. But avoid any kind of joke about appearance or taste, two highly sensitive areas, especially with those above you. Do not even try it when you are away from them. You will dig your own grave. Do not be the court cynic. If you constantly criticize your equals or subordinates, some of that criticism will rub off on you, hovering over you like a gray cloud wherever you go. People will groan at each new cynical comment, and you will irritate them. By expressing modest admiration for other people's achievements, you paradoxically call attention to your own. The ability to express wonder and amazement and seem like you mean it is a rare and dying talent, but one still greatly valued. 
Be self-observant. The mirror is a miraculous invention. Without it, you would commit great sins against beauty and decorum. You also need a mirror for your actions. This can sometimes come from other people telling you what they see in you, but that is not the most trustworthy method. You must be the mirror, training your mind to see yourself as others see you. Are you acting too obsequious? Are you trying too hard to please? Do you seem desperate for attention, giving the impression that you are on the decline? Be observant about yourself, and you will avoid a mountain of blunders. Master your emotions. As an actor in a great play, you must learn to cry and laugh on command and when it is appropriate. You must be able both to disguise your anger and frustration and to fake your contentment and agreement. You must be the master of your own face. Call it lying, if you like. But if you prefer to not play the game and to always be honest and upfront, do not complain when others call you obnoxious and arrogant. Fit the spirit of the times. A slight affectation of a past era can be charming as long as you choose a period at least 20 years back. Wearing the fashions of 10 years ago is ludicrous unless you enjoy the role of court jester. Your spirit and way of thinking must keep up with the times, even if the times offend your sensibilities. Be too forward-thinking, however, and no one will understand you. It is never a good idea to stand out too much in this area. You are best off at least being able to mimic the spirit of the times. Be a source of pleasure. This is critical. It is an obvious law of human nature that we will flee what is unpleasant and distasteful, while charm and the promise of delight will draw us like moths to a flame. Make yourself the flame and you will rise to the top. Since life is otherwise so full of unpleasantness and pleasure so scarce, you will be as indispensable as food and drink. This may seem obvious, but what is obvious is often ignored or unappreciated. There are degrees to this. Not everyone can play the role of favorite, for not everyone is blessed with charm and wit. But we can all control our unpleasant qualities and obscure them when necessary. Law 25. Recreate yourself. Judgment. Do not accept the roles that society foists on you. Recreate yourself by forging a new identity, one that commands attention and never bores the audience. Be the master of your own image rather than letting others define it for you. Incorporate dramatic devices into your public gestures and actions. Your power will be enhanced and your character will seem larger than life. Observance of the Law in the year 1831, a young woman named Aurore Dupin du Devant left her husband and family in the provinces and moved to Paris. She wanted to be a writer. Marriage, she felt, was worse than prison, for it left her neither the time nor the freedom to pursue her passion. In Paris, she would establish her independence and make her living by writing. Soon after du Devant arrived in the capital, however, she had to confront certain harsh realities. To have any degree of freedom in Paris, you had to have money. 
For a woman, money could only come through marriage or prostitution. No woman had ever come close to making a living by writing. Women wrote as a hobby, supported by their husbands or by an inheritance. In fact, when Dudevant first showed her writing to an editor, he told her, You should make babies, madam, not literature. Clearly, Dudevant had come to Paris to attempt the impossible. In the end, though, she came up with a strategy to do what no woman had ever done, a strategy to recreate herself completely, forging a public image of her own making. Women writers before her had been forced into a ready-made role, that of the second-rate artist who wrote mostly for other women. Dudevant decided that if she had to play a role, she would turn the game around. She would play the part of a man. In 1832, a publisher accepted Dudevant's first major novel, Indiana. She had chosen to publish it under a pseudonym, George Sand, and all of Paris assumed this impressive new writer was male. Dudevant had sometimes worn men's clothing before creating George Sand. She had always found men's shirts and riding breeches more comfortable. Now, as a public figure, she exaggerated the image. She added long men's coats, gray hats, heavy boots, and dandyish cravats to her wardrobe. She smoked cigars and, in conversation, expressed herself like a man, unafraid to dominate the conversation or to use a saucy word. This strange male-female writer fascinated the public, and unlike other women writers, Sand found herself accepted into the clique of male artists. She drank and smoked with them, even carried on affairs with the most famous artists of Europe, Musset, Liszt, Chopin. It was she who did the wooing, and also the abandoning. She moved on at her discretion. Those who knew Sand well understood that her male persona protected her from the public's prying eyes. Out in the world, she enjoyed playing the part to the extreme. In private, she remained herself. She also realized that the character of George Sand could grow stale or predictable, and to avoid this, she would, every now and then, dramatically alter the character she had created. Instead of conducting affairs with famous men, she would begin meddling in politics, leading demonstrations, inspiring student rebellions. No one would dictate to her the limits of the character she had created. Long after she died, and after most people had stopped reading her novels, the larger-than-life theatricality of that character has continued to fascinate and inspire. Interpretation The world wants to assign you a role in life, and once you accept that role, you are doomed. Your power is limited to the tiny amount allotted to the role you have selected or have been forced to assume. An actor, on the other hand, plays many roles. Enjoy that protean power, and if it is beyond you, at least forge a new identity, one of your own making, one that has had no boundaries assigned to it by an envious and resentful world. This act of defiance is Promethean. It makes you responsible for your own creation. Your new identity will protect you from the world precisely because it is not you. It is a costume you put on and take off. 
You need not take it personally, and your new identity sets you apart, gives you theatrical presence. Those in the back rows can see you and hear you. Those in the front rows marvel at your audacity. Keys to Power The character you seem to have been born with is not necessarily who you are, beyond the characteristics you have inherited, your parents, your friends, and your peers have helped to shape your personality. The Promethean task of the powerful is to take control of the process, to stop allowing others that ability to limit and mold them. Remake yourself into a character of power. Working on yourself like clay should be one of your greatest and most pleasurable life tasks. It makes you, in essence, an artist, an artist creating yourself. The first step in the process of self-creation is self-consciousness, being aware of yourself as an actor and taking control of your appearance and emotions. The bad actor is the one who is always sincere. People who wear their hearts on their sleeves out in society are tiresome and embarrassing. Their sincerity notwithstanding, it is hard to take them seriously. Good actors control themselves better. They can play sincere and heartfelt, can affect a tear and a compassionate look at will, but they don't have to feel it. They externalize emotion in a form that others can understand. Method acting is fatal in the real world. No ruler or leader could possibly play the part if all the emotions he showed had to be real. So learn self-control. Adopt the plasticity of the actor who can mold his or her face to the emotion required. The second step in the process of self-creation is a variation on the George Sands strategy. The creation of a memorable character, one that compels attention, that stands out above the other players on the stage. This was the game Abraham Lincoln played. The homespun, common countryman he knew was a kind of president that America had never had but would delight in electing. Although many of these qualities came naturally to him, he played them up, the hat and clothes, the beard. No president before him had worn a beard. Lincoln was also the first president to use photographs to spread his image, helping to create the icon of the homespun president. You must appreciate the importance of stage entrances and exits. When Cleopatra first met Caesar in Egypt, she arrived rolled up in a carpet, which she arranged to have unfurled at his feet. Your own entrances and exits should be crafted and planned as carefully. Remember that overacting can be counterproductive. It is another way of spending too much effort trying to attract attention. The actor Richard Burton discovered early in his career that by standing totally still on stage, he drew attention to himself and away from the other actors. It is less what you do that matters clearly than how you do it. Your gracefulness and imposing stillness on the social stage count for more than overdoing your part and moving around too much. Finally, learn to play many roles, to be whatever the moment requires. Adapt your mask to the situation. Be protean in the faces you wear. Bismarck played this game to perfection. To a liberal, he was a liberal. To a hawk, 
He was a hawk. He could not be grasped, and what cannot be grasped cannot be consumed. Law 26. Keep your hands clean. Judgment. You must seem a paragon of civility and efficiency. Your hands are never soiled by mistakes and nasty deeds. Maintain such a spotless appearance by using others as unwitting pawns and screens to disguise your involvement. Part 1. Conceal your mistakes. Have a scapegoat around to take the blame. Our good name and reputation depend more on what we conceal than on what we reveal. Everyone makes mistakes, but those who are truly clever manage to hide them and to make sure someone else is blamed. A convenient scapegoat should always be kept around for such moments. Observance of the Law Near the end of the 2nd century A.D., as China's mighty Han Empire slowly collapsed, the great general and imperial minister Tao Tao emerged as the most powerful man in the country. Seeking to extend his power base and to rid himself of the last of his rivals, Tao Tao began a campaign to take control of the strategically vital central plain. During the siege of a key city, he slightly miscalculated the timing for supplies of grain to arrive from the capital. As he waited for the shipment to come in, the army ran low on food, and Tao Tao was forced to order the chief of commissariat to reduce its rations. Tao Tao kept a tight rein on the army and ran a network of informers. His spies soon reported that the men were complaining, grumbling that he was living well while they themselves had barely enough to eat. Perhaps Tao Tao was keeping the food for himself, they murmured. If the grumbling spread, Tao Tao could have a mutiny on his hands. He summoned the chief of commissariat to his tent. I want to ask you to lend me something, and you must not refuse, Tao Tao told the chief. What is it? the chief replied. I want the loan of your head to show to the troops, said Tao Tao. But I've done nothing wrong, cried the chief. I know, said Tao Tao with a sigh, but if I do not put you to death, there will be a mutiny. Do not grieve. After you're gone, I'll look after your family. Put this way, the request left the chief no choice. So he resigned himself to his fate and was beheaded that very day. Seeing his head on public display, the soldiers stopped grumbling. Some saw through Tao Tao's gesture, but kept quiet, stunned, and intimidated by his violence, and most accepted his version of who was to blame, preferring to believe in his wisdom and fairness than in his incompetence and cruelty. Interpretation Occasional mistakes are inevitable. The world is just too unpredictable. People of power, however, are undone not by the mistakes they make, but by the way they deal with them. Like surgeons, they must cut away the tumor with speed and finality. Excuses satisfy no one, and apologies make everyone uncomfortable. The mistake does not vanish with an apology. It deepens and festers. Better to cut it off instantly, distract attention from yourself, and focus attention on a convenient scapegoat before people have time to ponder your responsibility or your possible incompetence. Keys to Power 
The use of scapegoats is as old as civilization itself, and examples of it can be found in cultures around the world. The main idea behind these sacrifices is the shifting of guilt and sin to an outside figure, object, animal, or man, which is then banished or destroyed. The bloody sacrifice of the scapegoat seems a barbaric relic of the past, but the practice lives on to this day, if indirectly and symbolically, since power depends on appearances and those in power must seem never to make mistakes. The use of scapegoats is as popular as ever. What modern leader will take responsibility for his blunders? He searches out others to blame, a scapegoat to sacrifice. When Mao Zedong's cultural revolution failed miserably, he made no apologies or excuses to the Chinese people. Instead, like Tao Tao before him, he offered up scapegoats, including his own personal secretary and high-ranking member of the party. Chen Boda. Franklin D. Roosevelt had a reputation for honesty and fairness. Throughout his career, however, he faced many situations in which being the nice guy would have spelled political disaster, yet he could not be seen as the agent of any foul play. For twenty years, then, his secretary, Lewis Howe, handled the backroom deals, the manipulation of the press, the underhanded campaign maneuvers. And whenever a mistake was committed, or a dirty trick contradicting Roosevelt's carefully crafted image became public, Howe served as a scapegoat and never complained. Finally, history has time and again shown the value of using a close associate as a scapegoat. This is known as the fall of the favorite. Most kings had a personal favorite at court a man whom they singled out, sometimes, for no apparent reason, and lavished with favors and attention. But this court favorite could serve as a convenient scapegoat in case of a threat to the king's reputation. The public would readily believe in the scapegoat's guilt. Why would the king sacrifice his favorite unless he were guilty? And the other courtiers, resentful of the favorite anyway, would rejoice at his downfall. The king, meanwhile, would rid himself of a man who by that time had probably learned too much about him, perhaps becoming arrogant and even disdainful of him. Choosing a close associate as a scapegoat has the same value as the fall of the favorite. You may lose a friend or aid, but in the long-term scheme of things, it is more important to hide your mistakes than to hold on to someone who one day will probably turn against you. Besides, you can always find a new favorite to take his place. Part 2. Make Use of the Cat's Paw In the fable, the monkey grabs the paw of his friend, the cat, and uses it to fish chestnuts out of the fire, thus getting the nuts he craves without hurting himself. If there is something unpleasant or unpopular that needs to be done, it is far too risky for you to do the work yourself. You need a cat's paw, someone who does the dirty, dangerous work for you. The cat's paw grabs what you need, hurts whom you need hurt, and keeps people from noticing that you are the one responsible. Let someone else be the executioner or the bearer of bad news, while you bring only joy and glad tidings. <laughs>